I tweeted it at 10 o'clock at night and woke up and Naval had retweeted it and 5,000 people were like, yeah, no, I want that. Like, shut up and take my money. I was like, oh shit, okay. I guess I gotta do this thing. In this episode, I'm joined by Eric Jorgensen, author of the soon-to-be-released Almanac of Naval Ravikant, a book of Naval's most valuable pieces of wisdom from his essays, podcasts, and tweets from the past decade. Eric was on the founding team of Zarli, a marketplace for home service providers, and the creator of Evergreen Library, a curated collection of timeless business wisdom, ranging from topics like product market fit to company culture and more. In this conversation, we discuss how he came up with the idea of the Nivalmanac, his first experience writing online with Evergreen, and reflecting on nine years of work with Zarli. Lastly, a big thank you to Jeff Morris Jr. for helping us to put together questions for this interview. Hope you enjoy. So I wanted to kick things off with a bit about your background. Can you tell our listeners the story of how you ended up at Zarly, the place where you currently work? Yeah, yeah, Zarly's kind of a funny story. It all started with a, a Twitter contest that I won to get a free ticket to go to a startup weekend. This is back in like 2009. This is like the heyday of startup weekend when they're, so they're these kind of like 54 hour hackathon events. We just show up, pitch an idea on Friday night and then work on it all weekend. And then on Sunday you end up pitching to a board of judges. And we ended up winning that startup weekend. And one of the judges introduced us to Bo Fishback, who at the time was the VP of entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation. And so he's traveling around the world, meeting all these startups. And two days later, we met him and kind of struck up a friendship. And I told him our thing I wanted most in the world was to go work at Kauffman because I saw this incubator they were building, Kauffman Labs, which was incredible. And so I got hired to go work at the Kauffman Foundation as an intern when I was still in college. And my first day of work, I showed up all excited for my first adult job. And he's like, welcome to Kauffman. I'm going to go quit my job and start a company. Do you want to come or do you want to stay here? And I, in 10 seconds, like left school, packed a bag. Here we go. Moved to Kansas City a couple of weeks later and started at Zarly. That was like two weeks before, before we launched Nationwide in 2011. So that all happened very, very quickly. That's great. And it sounds like an awesome pitch from Bo, you know, as the founder to be able to recruit you in these, these 10 seconds to come join the company. What was it, do you think, about Bo or about his pitch that you think was so convincing for you? And you were, you were in college at this time? Yeah, I was doing three degrees in five years. Oh, um, so that's just right. after four. It was kind of it ended up being like a very normal time to leave college, even though it was weird circumstances. Bo is an incredible, incredible guy. And I always say, like, I would go work for him in a McDonald's. But it was a no-brainer to, to kind of join him at a startup. I was super passionate about the problem that Zarly was solving. The proliferation of smartphones had just kind of reached peak. You know, it was kind of like iPhone 3, 3S territory, I think, in 2011. And Galaxy smartphones were coming out. And so it wasn't just like the beginning of it, but it was the beginning of everybody having like GPS-enabled, mm-hmm. you know, battery that actually lasted all day. And so we were starting to see smartphones change commerce more than just, you know, Craigslist was still like state of the art for local local services. And so we, we pitched Zarly as like the next version of that, the eBay or the Craigslist of, of mobile. And we started with all services like nationwide from day one. And it was just this insanely huge vision that was incredibly exciting and super easy to get behind. And Bo was this overwhelmingly charismatic guy who's been through all these companies before and had a bunch of successful exits and who's absolutely like brilliant and kind. So I've never seen a bigger like no-brainer to take a job for a a 21-year-old in my life, yeah. 
So you mentioned you guys started super wide. You know, you're literally offering all these services nationwide. You guys are much more narrow now. Can you give us a quick description of what Zarly focuses on now and how you guys have changed your focus over time? Yeah, it's the it's a mistake that's always obvious in hindsight and never when you're making it that that your market's too big and you're going too broad and you know the kind of companies that work when there are 10 million people on the platform don't work from one through one below 10 million. And so we kind of, we had all this data and people were very excited about the concept, right? People were using it for ride share. People were using it for grocery delivery. People were using it for picking up food. And this is all before Postmates. It was before Uber, it was before Instacart. And so we see all these use cases happening on Zarly when we were very like, you know, totally use case agnostic. You could just post, this is what I want and this is what I'm willing to pay. And it would notify people around you who could pick up those jobs. And then we started to see these verticalized marketplaces, like picking off Uber launches, like, oh man, they do rides like way better than we do. And, you know, Instacart comes out, it's like, wow, they're really specializing around grocery like that. You know, they're taking that use case. And so we started mining the data that we had and we realized how huge the home service market is and how broken it is and how the state of the art tools there, you know, Thumbtack and HomeAdvisor, and they, they don't do much to solve the fundamental problem there. And we saw people coming back over and over again to use house cleaners and lawn care. And we started thinking about what the last platform in home services would look like and got really excited about that vision. And so that was probably 2013. We got a lot more focus around home services and started working on that really, really, really specifically. Nice. So you've been with Zarly for some time now. How has your specific role within the company evolved over time? You know, I understand that you've worn a few different hats, right? Yeah, basically every hat you can wear if you can't code or design that has kind of almost accidentally prepared me incredibly well for the role I'm in now, which is more product strategy called mm-hmm. in within Zarly now. But it's it's kind of like accidentally prepared me by understanding in depth all of the different roles and all the different stakeholders in the ecosystem. You know, I've worked on the supply side, I've worked on the homeowner side, I've worked in the middle and, and kind of like very high out in the marketing and much closer to the product in support. And so it really gives you an appreciation for, especially the product this big, um, for all the nuances involved and the trade-offs in the, the system that you're managing. Yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone at Zarly, maybe outside of Bo that understands the business inside and out kind of as well as you do at this point in time, Eric. So I guess just kind of thinking back on your years so far at the company, what are some of the biggest strategies or maybe insights that you found that have really moved the needle for the company? Every time we have made the really difficult decision to refocus. It has been painful in the moment, Mm -hmm. but we have appreciated it in the long run. There's been probably three or four times that I can think of that we had to take a deep breath and swallow hard and throw away 80% of our work and really double down on the 20% that was working. And, you know, there's good stuff in that 80% and there's hard work in there from everybody all over the team. And it's really, really hard to do that. But every time that 20% starts to feel smoother and you start to understand it better and it's easier to make decisions because you're not making trade-offs between these things that are conflicting, trying to save something that isn't, you know, a really like core piece. The hard part is thinking ahead and being like, we still have more of those to make and not knowing exactly like where the break is or what the next decision is going to be. Those are hard enough that you push them off and leaning into them and making them as soon as you can probably Mm -hmm. would help us move faster. 
And I'm sure that you personally have gotten better at that decision-making process over time. You know, you spend enough time with the company, you learn better how to go about that process of making tough decisions to put your company in a better spot. Yeah, it's a thing that I don't think I appreciated as much when I was younger, but having been through it a few times, it's not about age, it's about having been through it a few times, really. And so when people look at, you know, that decision and wince and they're like, oh my God, I don't know, like what's on the other side of that decision, having been through it a few times, we can kind of more confidently say, I know this is going to be painful, but rip the bandaid off and the next dawn will be much more clear and I promise work gets easier after, after this decision. And you've certainly been through it a few times at this point. I did want to ask Eric, how have you maintained the focus to work on, you know, this single problem set for nine plus years? I think this is something that's so unique in our generation of taking jobs for two years, particularly in tech. I guess, what would you attribute that to? Yeah, I think it's, it's funny that it looks like one problem from the outside because it has definitely, I mean, the problems are changing all the time, whether you, you're looking at a problem that you're like, oh, that's unsolvable. We need to find a different way through or we solve that problem. Now it's out of the next one or, you know, your market changes. I mean, just from the, the short version of the story I've told, you can kind of see how the problem changes over time. And as your, when your role is changing and the company's context is changing, I, as an individual, am working on different problems all the time. And it's a space that is deeply broken and deserves a fix. So I'm quite motivated by the grand vision and the old saying, like no road is long with good company. I love the people I work with. So it, it is easy to not feel impatient when you enjoy what you're doing every day and who you're doing it with. It's easy to get tempted by moving between jobs quickly or going to like kind of get another sticker on your resume or get associated with like a hot fast growing startup. But if you're not at a company for at least two years, maybe four, you really have like no claim that you had anything to do with that company's success and you were probably completely replaceable. Um, so that's the thing that, you know, I look at when I'm interviewing people or whatever, it's, it's easy to say like, oh, they worked at Stripe and they worked at, you know, Google. But if they were at three or four different companies, even those companies are wildly successful for two years, I very much doubt they were instrumental to that company's success. And they were just kind of there to collect a sticker. I'm not resume building. I'm building Zarly because I love doing it and I love solving the problem and I like the people I work with. Like I feel very, very good about that. I think that's very admirable. And in thinking through not just the success that you guys have achieved as a company, but also the way in which you guys have achieved that success. You know, you tweeted recently, you guys recently had your first voluntary departure from the company in five years. You know, that's pretty incredible for a tech company. You don't see that too often. But I do want to switch gears here and talk a bit about the Navalmanac. So for our listeners that don't know, what is the Almanac of Naval Ravikant? And how did you come up with the idea to write a book about this guy? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure writing a book is a, is a fair characterization because it's really, I'm, I'm compiling a book. I haven't written one word of it. This, the, whole, the whole thing is just kind of stitching together raw materials that Naval has already created. So I was actually really inspired by the interview he did with Shane Parrish on the Farnham Street podcast. I listened to it three times. It was incredibly like insight dense and it had some things that just kind of, uh, there were just puzzle pieces that fit into my mind exactly the way I needed them to at the right time. And it just felt so weird that, you know, I've had those moments before in in books, but I had not experienced one in a podcast before. And it felt weird to have something so powerful be in such an ephemeral medium. And so I started thinking about how you would transform the insights of a podcast or of, you know, someone's Twitter feed. I've been following Naval since 2009, 
and I've learned a lot from him, but you know, all of those tweets are just dust in the wind now. And so I started thinking about how I could compile that into a book and if the book was the right medium or if it should be a website or whatever. And so I just kind of started playing with ideas. And uh, one night I, <laughs> I thought of a pun. I was like, what if I wrote the book of knowledge and put it up on, on Amazon real quick. And this was a very, I don't know, I didn't give it a second thought. And I tweeted it at 10 o'clock at night and woke up and Naval had retweeted it. And 5,000 people were like, yeah, no, I want that. Like, shut up and take my money. I was like, oh, shit. Okay. I guess I got to do this thing. And Naval offered, you know, to share his whole history of his, his tweets and any resources he could be helpful with, which is very generous of him. And, and so I just kind of got to work. And what started off me thinking through, like, this would be maybe a, you know, one or two month project. It's like instant scope creep into, oh my God, I'm going to compile everything. And I started working, you know, nights and weekends on this. And before I know it, I had a 600 page manuscript that was like completely comprehensive, like shockingly, intimidatingly comprehensive. And I started sending it out to some friends and people on Twitter who had volunteered to kind of be peer readers and review it for me and learned pretty quickly that some of the topics were very niche and some people were really interested in them and some were really only interested in one or two, but basically everyone was interested in the two main subjects, which were wealth and happiness. Go figure. Like everybody wants to be rich and happy. And so that's kind of what the the core book kind of got trimmed down to that. And so that plus a few extra kind of context pieces are what will actually be published, but everything else will be published on the website and the whole thing will be freely available online on the site on PDF and EPUB and whatever, whatever you read, but for people who want to, to buy a physical book, we're in the final process of that right now. So you're stitching together all these different tweets and thoughts from the ball, you know, and podcasts and different mediums. What does that process look like for you? Cause I'm sure there's, you know, this enormous amount of information out there just in terms of all the interviews Naval has done. How have you chosen the things to kind of go out and focus on over time? I know you mentioned that initial manuscript was just massive. Yeah, I definitely, I kind of had to invent the process as I was going. I mean, it's, it started out almost as just like taking notes, you know, I'm pulling excerpts and finding things that were interesting to me and, and stitching together, you know, concepts that it's interesting. And you look at 10 years of somebody's work, you can kind of watch a seed of an idea that Naval talked about in 2010 get brought up again in an interview in 2013 and then mentioned again in, you know, a podcast in 2018. And you kind of watch these ideas grow and change. So Eric, just in thinking through kind of your favorite pieces of Naval advice, are there things that you've learned in particular that have really informed your own personal growth or things that you think more people just need to hear? Yeah, there's definitely a few. I think one of Naval's gifts is synthesizing or distilling very common truisms, but making them like a little bit more precise even and giving them some nuance that hadn't been appreciated before. The first one that comes to mind is accountability. You know, the common version of that phrase is you got to risk it to get the biscuit or entrepreneurs take risk or something like that. And I think accountability is a much more nuanced, specific view. You know, it's easy to take risk. You can go put it all on red and take all the risk you want. But accountability, personal responsibility for the downside doesn't mean it has to be risky. It just means that you are on the hook for whatever risk there is. And so I think it kind of has this baked in message to more of responsibility than of risk taking, which I think is a really important kind of nuance when it comes to, you know, find upside with low downside. You can take accountability without 
actively seeking risk. The message that like you have to take risk to build wealth is dangerous. The message you have to take accountability to build wealth is healthy and responsible. Another one in that kind of category is, is leverage. And so the old saying, you know, it takes money to make money is a little true, but Naval's version, which is it takes leverage to make money and leverage can come in many forms. One is capital, one is labor, and one is this kind of, you know, product with no marginal cost of reproduction. So, you know, media podcasts, like we're doing writing code software, that's a more nuanced version than takes money to make money that really helps people think through more options and just to be a little more creative with how they solve the problem of building wealth for themselves. You've been generating this type of leverage for some time now, you know, even before you started this book on Naval, you had this personal blog, Evergreen Library. Can you speak a little bit to how that got started? And I guess what the initial goal was with that? Yeah, Evergreen kind of came out of this insight that the internet is not built off of the Lindy effect. You know the Lindy effect? I'm not familiar. Okay. It's a rule that kind of Nassim Tlaib talks about a lot that is the, when you're trying to assess how important or valuable something is, you just have to kind of assume you are at the half-life of that thing. And so if a book has been around for 50 years, you can assume it's going to be around for 50 more years. And it's probably like a relatively important book. If it's been around for one year, you assume you're at the halfway point and it's gone by the year after that. Maybe it doesn't have any timeless, super important wisdom. And so I started looking for, you know, I'm always trying to learn and self-educate and you know, I'm looking around the internet, trying to filter for quality, basically, and trying to apply the linear effect of like, what's been around for a really long time? What's a timeless resource that I can use to teach myself product management or product market fit or something like that. And I had a really hard time finding anything that was filtered by quality. And so I built Evergreen to kind of be the MVP of testing that idea of like, how do you collect timeless resources online and organize them by quality, not by what's the most recent, you know, everything we use is a is a refreshing feed that's constant. And like, there's, you know, economic reasons for that because all these companies are trying to get, you know, visits and page views. But the internet in the scheme of things is relatively young. You know, it's only 30 years old. The analogy that I use that I think is maybe the most helpful is what I wanted to build is, and still want to build, it's the library of the internet. So, you know, Wikipedia is our encyclopedia. Google's our, you know, command F key. Reddit's our front page, but there's no library. There's nowhere you can go that is like timeless, high quality resources that have been somewhat curated that are really, really tightly organized with a kind of a guide to help you find, you know, what you need in that moment. It's more that you can ever need to read, but the answer to your question is somewhere in this, you know, in this room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was kind of where Evergreen started, the, the ideal that it started with anyway. And, and where it ended up and is currently is just kind of like my personal self-administered MBA. So every week I would pick a topic, you know, um, network effects and mail out this topic to my mailing list. There's like a couple thousand people and I'd say, send me the best thing you've ever read, seen, listened to, whatever about network effects. And people would respond with all these resources and I would take in as much of it as I could in a week or two. And I would write this summary that kind of pulls out the most important concepts and synthesize it the best I could and link back to the original material. So in 10 or 15 minutes, if you just read the post or a few hours, if you went back through those original resources, you could really get an overview uh, or find your way down a really productive rabbit hole towards learning some of these concepts that, that were really helping drive a perspective of a business and get up to speed on concepts you know, from the startup world or from the tech world that people might not have already known about. 
Well, it kind of comes back to this idea. Would you rather read thousands of books over the course of your lifetime or the best 100 books over and over and over and constantly remind yourself of that knowledge? And Eric, you mentioned timelessness, but I guess, are there any other concepts or things you've taken away from the growth of Evergreen in terms of creating good content that people want to read uh, or building an audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I had always believed, wanted to believe that creating Evergreen content was worthwhile you know, and an endeavor on its own. And I mean, I haven't written on Evergreen Post in years and it still gets, you know, tens of thousands of views a month. So I, I was rewarded in that and somewhat vindicated in the like, yes, investing in Evergreen content works and is worthwhile and people keep coming back to it. It was also my first experience really like creating something on the internet for free and seeing that there were people out there that were interested in it, even though it was like quite nerdy and niche. And there's just something deeply reassuring about yelling into the internet and finding people who are like, hell yeah, we agree. Thank you for doing this. I still have a, like a giant Evernote file of people who, who you know, just really, really positive feedback and everyone was all donations based. So, you know, every once in a while, it's only happened once or twice, but I wake up to an email that was like $500 donation from some CEO that was like, you have no idea how much pain that, you know, company culture post just saved me. Thank you for writing that. It was exactly what I needed right when I, right when I found it. And those are, those are really rewarding. So I want to fast forward to present day here, looking forward to once you've completed the almanac of Naval Ravikant, what are you thinking through in terms of your next project? Uh, and how are you thinking through the process of what you want to tackle next? Yeah, it's always top of mind, right? <laughs> the an unexpected benefit of working on one thing for two years is that I've had a lot of shitty ideas come and go and not, <laughs> not worked on them um, when I shouldn't have, but had something better to do in the meantime. I'm really excited to, to get the Navalmanac out there and see what happens next. Depending on what happens, I may do another book, another almanac. I, like, I kind of like the format and now that I know what it looks like and how it feels to get through one, I'd love to do another if we find the right person for it. And, and if you know the, the first one goes over well. The other idea that I am really attached to right now is the I'm calling it like wire cutter for online courses. And I'm just kind of playing with the idea that I'm I'm so long on online education and I've taken a few courses that have been career changing and life changing online and it's such an incredible format, but the space is new and messy and it's really hard to find trustworthy content. And there's a lot of kind of shysters out there, you know, foisting courses on people like get rich quick schemes and stuff like that. So I think it's a space that could really use authoritative content. So, I mean, the website's a baby. I just put it up like a month ago, but it's called Course Correctly. And the tagline is independent, unbiased reviews for knowledge workers. So I would really like to dive into interviewing course creators and reviewing online courses and comparing things and starting to put together some curriculums for like, hey, you want to get into a growth role at a startup? Here's the four online courses that will prepare you incredibly well. Some of those are still emerging ideas, but that's kind of what's on the horizon for me. That's awesome. And I think as we see... I guess the disruption and then also the unbundling of higher education, I think online courses are absolutely going to be at the forefront of that. So I can definitely see a need there. And we can certainly link to that in the show notes. So more of a philosophical question here. At a high level, where does your interest in these side projects come from? You know, why write the Navalmanac? Why create Evergreen a course correctly? It's a good question. I think they all, <laughs> they all start out playing. Like they start because I'm interested in them. 
And I'm like, I really want to just mess around with this and see what happens. And then at some point they all turn into work and I'm kind of grateful for both of those. You know, the play at the core of it is because it's interesting to me and I find it rewarding and I appreciate that I can spend time, you know, playing with ideas that I like. And then when it comes time to share them with people, I all of a sudden hold myself to a much higher bar and then it turns into work. And then I have to push myself to make, you know, this book better or this blog post better or, you know, reread it. You know, my standards for something to get shared under my own name are high, certainly higher than something that like I just take notes for myself and, you know, keep personally. So the pressure to publish something definitely makes me better or makes my work better at least. And and I, I appreciate that it's both, even though the work feels like work sometimes, you know, as long as you're working on something that you find fun, it's still rewarding. That definitely resonates with me. And I think these two ideas, you know, firstly, that great things start out as toys. And then the second thing, this idea that learning in public and publishing publicly can hold you your cannibal. I don't think they have to necessarily be held separately. I think holding them in conjunction can lead to these great things, you know, like an almanac of Naval Ravikant's knowledge. So Eric, just kind of the question that Ethan and I like to ask all our guests, what are some of your favorite books and podcasts and how have they changed the way that you view the world? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of ways to answer that. I think I've been separating my reading list into more specific answers to that because I'm a nerd and I think that's fun. So I think the foundation books, which I would say are the books that I will reread for the whole rest of my life and either shaped or represent my worldview, which which should probably be a pretty short list. And so I think that's Poor Charlie's Almanac. That's like the compilation of Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's business partner, who's a genius polymath billionaire. He's he's irreverent and fun and crotchety and hilarious. I, I absolutely love, I was very lucky to, my dad had that book lying around and I picked it up when I was 21 and it was deeply formative. The most recent one is the Systems Bible. It's a very weird book and it's definitely an acquired taste, but uh, it kind of gives you x-ray vision to like see the world a little bit differently and understand how things how things happen that are just complete mysteries. I love Richard Feynman, so I'm consistently rereading him. I just love how chaotic he is. He's chaotic good, for sure. He's, he's all over the place. He's always trying new things. He's brilliant in his simplicity and how clearly he can explain things. I put Calvin and Hobbes on that list. Calvin and Hobbes is super formative for me. I read every single panel growing up. I still have the books. It's very grounding. You know, when you read it as an adult, it's very like philosophical. As a kid, the philosophy flies over your head and you're just appreciating, you know, the little truisms. I read a lot of Farnham Street. I have since it was, you know, tiny. I love, you know, Shane Parrish's curation and how he sees the world and his respect for just creating really, really high quality content with no spin and no clickbait. He's, he's just really in it for the right reasons and does incredible work. Everybody on his team does. So yeah, Farnham Street is definitely on my, on my must read. And kind of my last question here, I guess unique to you is what are some of the best resources or advice that you found when it comes to writing? Yeah, I don't know. I don't study writing as a craft as I've learned as I hire editors who are like, what is wrong with you? The best writing advice I think I have is just your inputs determine your outputs. Read the stuff you're interested in. Know you'll start to sound like whoever you read for better or worse. I read a lot of Douglas Adams. And so I have a weird kind of like irreverent break the fourth wall writing style, which is kind of strange for the business world. I love reading Wait But Why, who's like kind of a similar, when people called Evergreen Wait But Why for business, I was like, oh my God, that's the greatest compliment I could have received. Mm-hmm. You just find things that resonate with your personality and let it go. I, th- I don't think the, I think the internet lets us care a lot less about the craft of writing for better or worse. 
Absolutely. And I'm a big believer that the content that we take in, the content we consume creates kind of a lens through which we see the world. So Eric, where can our listeners find you? When might they be able to expect to see the Navalmanac? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Twitter is where I'm at the most often. The Navalmanac is, we got a few things to figure out still before I have a release date, but we're getting close. There's a mailing list for the Navalmanac that you can go to navalmanac.com with a CK. Sign up for that. I'll send out all the you know updates, all the content that gets published as it gets published. Um, so you can find that there. I got a little personal site, but that's just a few random blog posts. We can find all that on Twitter. We will definitely link to those in the show notes. On that note, I got open DMs. You can holler at me anytime you want. There you go, folks. Slide in Eric's DMs. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Ashley Tyson with Worth. You can find show notes below or at worth.card.co. That's card with two R's. Thanks for your time.